Just in case, just in case, comes now the undersigned and hear my request with all due respect. From the honorable hills on her right of your right do you want to Hello and welcome to the June 19, 2017 edition of Just In Case. This is the podcast of criminal law cases, Just In, from the Supreme Court of the United States, the Tenth Circuit, and the Kansas Appellate Courts. I'm Paige Nichols, and this podcast is brought to you by Monnet and Spurrier Chartered on the first and third Mondays of every month. Today I'll be talking about published cases of interest decided on or after June 5, 2017. I'll tell you right now, we've just got two federal cases and then a lot of quite interesting cases from Kansas. Let's start with the Tenth Circuit. In United States v. Williamson, the Tenth Circuit affirmed Mr. Williamson's child pornography convictions, rejecting Mr. Williamson's challenge to the district court's refusal to appoint new counsel and its failure to ensure that his subsequent waiver of counsel, for both trial and sentencing purposes, was voluntary, knowing, and intelligent. These are complicated issues, so if you're trying to figure out what the trial court's duties are when faced with a lawyer's motion to withdraw or a defendant's request for new counsel, be sure to read Williamson so you'll know what the Tenth Circuit thinks. Also in Williamson, the Tenth Circuit rejected challenges to a search warrant that was not titled search warrant and that was issued upon an unsigned affidavit of probable cause. In Pavat v. Royal, the Tenth Circuit sent an Oklahoma state death sentence back to the district court for further habeas proceedings. The Tenth Circuit concluded that evidence of the victim's shooting death was insufficient to support the heinous, atrocious, and cruel aggravating factor, as that factor must be constitutionally construed. And that is the news from Denver, which means it's time for us to tiptoe through the sunflowers and see what's blooming at the Kansas appellate courts. In State v. McDaniel, the Kansas Supreme Court affirmed Mr. McDaniel's felony murder and aggravated robbery convictions, rejecting arguments related to his pretrial requests for new counsel. The Kansas Supreme Court did hold that the district court here erred in two ways. First, the district court violated Mr. McDaniel's constitutional and statutory right to be present when the court reopened the preliminary hearing in Mr. McDaniel's absence in order to put some things on the record about Mr. McDaniel's request for new counsel. Second, the district court violated its duty to inquire when Mr. McDaniel first requested new counsel. Mr. McDaniel had asked, can I please explain a little of what I have here? And the district court had said simply, the answer to that is no. But even though the district court violated its duty here, it ultimately did appoint new counsel, and so these errors were harmless. State v. Baker is a Fourth Amendment case. Mr. Baker was arrested on an outstanding warrant. The police searched his backpack at the scene of the arrest and found paraphernalia inside a Nintendo game case, and then later searched more thoroughly and found drugs inside a cell phone case. Mr. Baker moved to suppress the evidence as the fruit of a warrantless search. The state argued inevitable discovery on grounds that the evidence would have been found anyway during an inventory search at the jail. Jail officials testified that, yes, they would have inventoried a small bag or backpack, but they didn't offer any details about what that inventory might have looked like and what kind of inventory standards the jail had. Importantly here, they didn't testify about whether there were any standards for searching inside other containers, like a Nintendo game case or a cell phone case. This was insufficient to prove 
that the evidence would have been inevitably discovered through a valid inventory search of the backpack. And the district court should have granted the motion to suppress, says the Supreme Court in State v. Baker. State v. Hockmeister is another Fourth Amendment case. Here, the Kansas Supreme Court affirmed the district court's denial of a motion to suppress, finding sufficient probable cause in a search warrant affidavit to authorize a computer search. In State v. Bogess, that's B-O-G-G-U-E-S-S, the Kansas Supreme Court affirmed the district court's denial of Mr. Bogess's 60-1507 ineffective assistance of counsel claim. The claim was that counsel had duped Mr. Bogess into waiving his right to a jury trial. The Kansas Supreme Court rejected that claim on its merits. But it first made an important procedural point. The Court of Appeals had held that Mr. Bogess was prohibited from raising counsel's ineffectiveness in his 60-1507 proceeding because he had kind of made IAC claims in support of an unsuccessful motion for new counsel at sentencing. On direct appeal, he had argued that the district court should have granted new counsel, but he did not argue that the lawyer he had was ineffective under Strickland, and the Kansas Supreme Court didn't treat the issue as an IAC issue. Remember, you're not usually supposed to raise IAC claims on direct appeal, and here Mr. Bogues did not raise an IAC claim on direct appeal, and the Kansas Supreme Court did not decide an IAC claim on direct appeal. Consequently, Mr. Bogess was not barred from raising his IAC claim in his 60-1507 proceedings. In Khalil al-Salami v. State, the Kansas Court of Appeals reversed the district court's denial of 60-1507 relief in an aggravated sodomy case. The Court of Appeals held that Mr. Khalil al-Salami's trial lawyer was ineffective in several ways. One, he failed to request an interpreter for his Arabic-speaking client. Two, he failed to file a motion to suppress his client's confession, which had been taken without an interpreter. Three, he stipulated to the voluntariness of his client's confession. Four, he failed to object to improper questioning. Five, he failed to object to questions meant to highlight his client's negative character traits. Six, he failed to object when the prosecutor misstated evidence during closing arguments. A couple of points about trial counsel's failure to request that interpreter. First, counsel thought he was making a strategic decision because he worried that the jurors might think his client was somehow faking a language barrier or otherwise hold the interpreter against him. But as the Court of Appeals pointed out, any negative fallout over using an interpreter can be discussed during voir dire and handled with a special jury instruction. The second point the Court of Appeals makes is that if a client really wants to waive an interpreter, that decision ought to be done in front of the judge, with a colloquy explaining the client's right to the interpreter. I want to read the Court's final comments on the interpreter issue. We do not believe a reasonable attorney would have placed a fear of the jury's perception of the defendant, a perception that could have been adequately addressed during voir dire and through jury instructions, over and above the defendant's ability to understand the proceedings. The defendant here deserved more. Particularly inappropriate in this nation where many languages are spoken is a callousness to the crippling language handicap of a newcomer to its shores, whose life and freedom the state by its criminal processes chooses to put in jeopardy. 
State v. Lewis is a Fourth Amendment case. Here, the Kansas Court of Appeals held that the district court should have granted Mr. Lewis's motion to suppress the fruit of a traffic stop of Mr. Lewis's pink Cadillac. The officers unreasonably prolonged the stop for purposes of a dog sniff that was not otherwise justified. The delay was an undisputed five minutes, and it appears to have been caused by the dog handler's efforts to get the dog to, quote, use the bathroom before the sniff. In State v. Jamerson, the Kansas Court of Appeals held that when it comes to restitution, a judge may order the defendant to pay even while he's in prison, but the judge has to unambiguously state that intent in the judgment. Otherwise, restitution won't become due until after the defendant is released. State v. Lamone is a DUI case. Ms. Lamone challenged the use of two prior municipal DUI convictions to classify her DUI charge as a felony. The two prior convictions were under Wichita's pre-2016 municipal code. The code then defined vehicle for DUI purposes as basically anything that could be used to transport a person or property. The definition included, for instance, bicycles. It was broader than the state definition of vehicle for DUI purposes. That definition excludes devices moved by human power, like, say, bicycles. Okay, so it looks like these municipal DUIs can't be used to enhance the state DUI sentence because the municipal crime is categorically broader and is a mismatch with the state predicate. But can't the judge just look at the municipal pleadings and figure out whether the defendant was convicted of bicycle DUI or car DUI or what have you? No. The Court of Appeals makes it clear in Lamone that the modified categorical approach which would allow a limited peek at the pleadings to figure out what kind of DUI those priors were, is not appropriate here. And that's because of the U.S. Supreme Court case Mathis. If you don't have a handle on Mathis yet, take a look at Lamone. It might help inch you there. State v. Castillo is about felony DUI post-release or post-imprisonment supervision. In Kansas, the DUI laws are self-contained. That means that DUI sentences are not calculated under the sentencing guidelines. And that means that the time a person spends under supervision after serving a DUI prison sentence is not the same as a post-release supervision term under the guidelines. The end result here is that district courts, not the Secretary of Corrections, have jurisdiction to revoke a DUI defendant's post-imprisonment supervision. Last from the Kansas Court of Appeals, but not least. Have you been called to jury service in Sedgwick County? If so, you might want to get your affairs in order. You don't want to land in jail like the juror did in Henry McDaniel. Ms. McDaniel, a single working mother of two, was called for jury duty in Sedgwick County. She appeared the first day as summoned, and she ended up as part of a large pool assigned to a courtroom for jury selection in a criminal case. On the second day, Ms. McDaniel had a dilemma. She didn't have any child care for her young son. Her mother was supposed to have taken care of him, but her mother had had to take her father to the hospital. Ms. McDaniel called the jury clerk, explained what happened, asked whether she could either bring her son with her to court in the morning or whether she could just not come in until the afternoon when her son would be in afternoon kindergarten. The clerk insisted that Ms. McDaniel needed to come to court in the morning but could not bring her son with her. The conversation deteriorated, as the Court of Appeals put it, and Ms. McDaniel 
did not report for jury service that day until the afternoon. When she got there, the jury clerk told her she'd have to come back later in the week and explain to the judge why she'd been late. Ms. McDaniel did come back later in the week as directed and, much to her surprise, found herself the subject of a criminal contempt proceeding. Since she hadn't had any notice about this proceeding, she didn't have a lawyer. And during the proceeding, the judge gave her no opportunity to confront witnesses, no advisory of her right to remain silent, and by the way, the judge did grill her, no advisory of the right or opportunity to present witnesses, and in the end, the judge found Ms. McDaniel in direct criminal contempt of court for being late to jury service and sent her to jail. And I mean directly to jail. The judge made Ms. McDaniel wait in the courtroom for a deputy to come and get her. And that was 30 days in jail, followed by work release with a six-month underlying sentence. And this is all despite her pleas that if she was sent to jail, she could lose custody of her children. Ms. McDaniel's mother called a lawyer. That lawyer couldn't find any record of the contempt case in the court's electronic case system. He learned that the case had a miscellaneous record designation and and was filed under seal. So he tried to get access, but the judge refused to grant it, and the lawyer wasn't even able to file an appearance in the case because of its sealed status. But the day after the judge learned of the lawyer's involvement, the judge, sua sponte, had the jail transport Ms. McDaniel back to his courtroom with no notice to her lawyer, where the judge commuted her sentence to time served and released her. Well, that didn't stop her from appealing, and on appeal, the Kansas Court of Appeals reversed the contempt conviction on several grounds. First, her tardiness on the second day of her jury service was neither a direct contempt nor a criminal contempt. I'll let you read the opinion if you want to understand more about the distinctions between contempt types and what those mean from a procedural perspective. Second, guess what? The legislature has provided a sanction for jurors' unexcused absences. At KSA 43-165, that sanction is capped at a $100 a day fine. No prison time. The existence of this sanction meant that the district court was not free to impose any other sanction. Third, Ms. McDaniel's tardiness didn't obstruct justice. Jury selection went on as planned. Even the judge said so. Fourth, the judge deprived Ms. McDaniel of a host of due process rights. As the Court of Appeals lists them, those rights were the right to be informed of the charges, the right to confront the jury clerk, the right to call witnesses, the right to refrain from being a witness, the right to the rules of evidence, and, of course, the right to have counsel represent her at both the contempt hearing and the sentence commutation hearing. Fifth, never mind all those rights and whatnot, the conviction is void anyway because the judge didn't even comply with the statutory requirements for journalizing contempt judgments. Conviction reversed. Thank you for listening to this episode of Just In Case. Want to talk back? Email me at justincasepodcast at gmail.com. I'm Paige Nichols, and I'll see you again in two weeks. Oye, 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 wherefore, whereby, we're ready to wear. Res judicata, give me pizza cutter. Just in case.